Good morning, Chicago. You're listening to Inspirational Perspective. I'm your host, Linnell Harris, Chicago's own life coach right here on WVON 1690 AM, the talk of Chicago. Inspirational Perspective on your radio is all about murdering mediocrity and living the best life possible. So as I ask you every Sunday morning, are you living the best life possible? And this is the place to be to explore that possibility. All right. Well, very excited this Sunday morning for the show that you, we have prepared for you guys. Some wonderful guests I'm going to introduce in, the, in a moment here. But before I get into that, Again, my name is Linnell Harris, host of Inspirational Perspective, and today is the 14th day. I can't help but say this because we're going to spend most of the show talking about Dr. Martin Luther King. But with this being the 14th day of the new year, what I know has happened based on research is those of you who have set goals, it is very likely, very likely that you have possibly had a breakdown in some of those goals. And the reason why this is important is because I want you to know that this Sunday morning, you can start all over again. You can recycle those goals and move forward. All right. Now, if this is the first time you've heard me, you don't know anything about me. I'm going to challenge you to go out to the website, slayyourgoals.com and download my free book, Take advantage of the book, read the book, and learn how to get started even when you have a breakdown. Because that's what life is all about. Hitting resistance and then starting all over again. So I wanted to share that before I got into the topic of the show. As always, those of you who want to follow us on Facebook, please do so. And we're streaming live video right now. Here in the studio on Facebook Live and Periscope. So thank you guys for joining. I already have the audience here. And with that, I want to go ahead and introduce the topic and introduce my guest that we'll be chatting with today who will be joining us throughout the morning. So first and foremost, it's my distinct pleasure to have both Salim and Domati as a part of this conversation. So, Salim, good morning, sir. How are you? I'm well, Linnell. Good morning to you, my brother. How are you doing? I'm well. I'm well. And, and I'm excited, by the way, that you, you accepted this invitation and that you'll be having this conversation with us. Now, for the listening audience so that you guys know, the topic this morning is Dr. King, 50 years later, three generations Three perspectives. And it looks like I, I just lost, I just lost Salim. So hopefully he'll, he'll be calling back in, but that's the topic this morning. Now the idea was this, right? Many of us have different perspectives of Dr. King, of what Dr. King has, has done. And what I wanted to do is capture those perspectives, not just in terms of you know, what we think of Dr. King, but more importantly, the generations that he's impacted with his work. So 
That's why I asked both Salim and Dumbati to join. So, and Salim, I think you're back. Yes, sir. Okay. So, I'm very, very happy to have you guys here. And here's the other piece right here. This is what we'll, we'll be discussing ultimately. So I've asked Salim and Dumbati both to prepare three perspectives, three highlights from the life of Dr. King. Okay. And then lastly, I've asked them to prepare in the second hour. So we'll talk about that in the first hour. And in the second hour, I've asked them to then share how do we move forward? You know, Dr. King is no longer here. One of the things that we've talked about as a community is that there's no leadership. So I want to discuss is leadership necessary and how do we move forward as a community overall? So, Salim, thank you for being here. Doma T is on. Doma T, if you're listening, call the 773-591-1690 number because for some reason I can't keep you and Salim on at the same time. All right, cool. So he's going to do that, and then we'll have Doma T on as well. But, Salim, since since I have you, I, I love your thoughts on, you know, what you like to get out of the show this morning and what you'd like to contribute to the listeners. I have a, a pretty complicated relationship to the idea of Dr. King, to, to him himself and, and to the idea that he represents, you know, the, the, the uh, nonviolent uh, resistance. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and I first encountered Dr. King when he was leading a demonstration in New Jersey. Oh, wow. I think uh, Salim just got cut off. Linnell, can you hear me? I can hear you, but Salim got cut off. So, yeah, we got to figure out how to have both of you on at the same time. For some reason, he got cut off when I went to you. Um, oh, man, it was, it was about to be good, too. It was. It was. It was, about to, it was about to be really good because I, I definitely want Salim's perspective on this. So we, we got to figure out how to have. Well, I, and I know you're heading into the studio, Doma T. So, yeah, you yeah. know, what I may ask you is once you get into the studio, we'll, we'll, we'll begin the conversation with you. And for now, I'll uh, let Salim start. How about that? Let's do that. That's wonderful. Okay. And, and first of all, Linnell, I just got to say thank you for having this conversation. It's so oh, you're welcome. I think we talk more and more about the division between the generations without talking about how we can learn from one another in, in a constructive way and uh, talk about the complexities of who King was and learn from each of those perspectives. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really excited about this. I'm going to come in and see you in studio in just a moment. And uh, I'll be listening in to hear what Salim has to say as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Awesome. So let me let me go back to Salim real quick. So good morning, Salim. Yes, and, sir. And, morning. and sorry about that, man. We, we're going to have to figure out. How to have you? Sometimes that happens. I don't know what it is. You know, you can't get two people on at the same time. Sometimes there's a glitch in the connection. Yeah. Well, I mean, we want to have callers today too, so we 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 got to figure this one out. So I'll ask Gerald to and and Patrick to figure this one out, so we can have some callers because I'm sure you're going to have people who have questions. But uh, please continue. You were saying that you had a complicated relationship with the ideals of Dr. King, and um, go ahead. In the north, we we kind of rejected his whole modality, you know, the, the hymn singing, the uh, overall wearing kind of sensibility that they represented um, was something that was, we had a different sensibility, you know, we urban folks, city boys, mm-hmm. and, and, and we, we didn't think that the we shall overcome and, and, and passive resistance thing was, was to our liking. You know, we weren't with that too strongly. Malcolm really exemplified, Malcolm X exemplified right. the kind of spirit that we had. And so I was, I was a bit 
reluctant to, um, you know, to endorse King's methods when I was uh, a teenager, young teenager. And then mm-hmm. um, I found myself at the march in 63. I, I was a young boy <laughs> looking for women. Ah. And, and we, we heard that there would be a lot of women in, in Washington, D.C. So is that is that is that what drew you there? It was it was it was it the movement? And, and, I, and I love your honesty and transparency. But was it the movement? Well, it sounds like for you, it was the social gathering and the uh, the likelihood of beautiful women. Exactly right. OK, that was that was my lure. That's what pulled me and four other brothers to D.C. OK, that day. And, and in fact, you know, it was true. The rumors were correct. There were a lot of women who were attracted to that movement. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really even hear Martin Luther King, uh, that day. I, I heard, you know, little, little echoes of his speech. But what, what impressed me was the dedication of the people who had attended. You know, they, they were, there was something beyond themselves that kind of pulled them to the Capitol, beyond the kind of selfish motives that we, me and my boys had. Mm-hmm. And that was, very impressive to me in a unique way. I hadn't seen people assembled together for, you know, that kind of dedication before. Mm-hmm. And that, that struck me very strongly. And, and then, but, but still, I was, I, I was still, it wasn't compatible with my sensibilities at that time. I still rejected the kind of Southern mm-hmm. orientation of, of the King movement. You know, in New York, there, there was always this strong, separation between country people and city people and the king movement seemed to exemplify the attitudes of country people and Got so it. there was that stylistic division and, uh, and salim if i'm not mistaken you are from new york correct yes yes sir okay i'm, I'm from new york and and then that next year um this was in 63 is when when, when that the march happened the next year there was a, a riot in harlem the mm. first of the long hot summer riot okay and in 64 in 64 right? okay and and so that you know that that uh, hit me in a completely different way. It pushed me into the into the uh, the service, the air force. I, I you know trying to jump out of the firing thing. Mm. Um, I, I jumped into the fire though because that was the those were the Vietnam years. Oh wow! Of, of, yeah, 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 yeah. So, but anyway, the point is, is that King was something that he was kind of an oppositional figure mm-hmm. as, as far as I could see in, in the beginning, and then as time passed, I began to appreciate his methods, that he was utilizing a strategy that required discipline mm. that that I hadn't factored into my you know into my, my considerations before. And, and so I, I I started to gain new appreciation for Dr. King. And then uh, there was and, and how long how long did that take, Salim? I mean because you know yeah. sixty three you're a young guy, you know, you, mm-hmm. you head to DC for the march, not to necessarily be a participant, but to, you know, to scout out beautiful women. How old were you? I was 16. Six. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 Man. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. So you were, you were definitely young. Yeah. I was so, in, that makes man. a lot of sense. Yeah. So at yeah. what, at what point did you begin to really be appreciate King's movement and look, look outside of the differences of North, South, you know, how, how Southerners may have approached this versus Northerners, et cetera. When he began to oppose the Vietnam War. Ah. Uh, because, you know, I was in the service and it was, you know, mm-hmm. I, I've met some of the most radical people about, uh, I've ever met in the military, ironically. And, and they were anti-war strongly. And so mm-hmm. when Dr. King came out against the war, I began to, 
really respect his moral courage, mm. the fact that he would do something like that at a time when that was considered outside of the province of most black leadership. And I really appreciated that. And then, of course, when he was assassinated, that increased my appreciation even more because the contrast of no king made his presence more poignant. Yeah. And then I, I got shot that same year. You know, I, I often say that there are three things that I share with Dr. King. Um, wow. That I saw him in 63 at the March. We were both born in January. Mm-hmm. And we both were shot in a motel in the South in 68. Wow. I got shot in 68 in Georgia. I didn't um, know that about you, Celine. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I, I was shot by a motel owner in the state of Georgia. And, in fact, I was one of my... Um, one of my marks of, of uh, infamy, I guess you would say, mm-hmm. is I was written up in Jet Magazine as, as being deceased. Oh, um, wow. Because two servicemen were shot that same weekend. One was shot in uh, another part of Georgia. Black, um, black, ser- I, I, black servicemen. Black servicemen, right. Okay, okay. And, and, he, and he died. I was mm. shot and I lived, but they mixed the names up and, uh. and had me as, as dying. So, you know, my... <laughs> But my, uh, my gunshot, the fact that I was a victim of a gunshot and Dr. King was as well, that's, that's the last thing that I have in common with, uh. Now, with now, Salim, there, there are probably some listeners who, you know, they're, they're listening to you. They don't know who you are. And when to hear, so for me, because of the influence you've had on me over the last five to six years since we've gotten to know each other, you know, to think that we could lose King in 68 and the likes of a Salim, Muakil, is frightening, right? And so let me quickly, you know, share with the listeners who you are. And if I, if I miss anything, um, by all means, you know, fill it in. But, you know, so Celine, first and foremost, is a, is a colleague here at WBON who has a show that aired last night. So more than he's being very generous <laughs> because he's on the air three hours himself from, uh, six to nine, right? Well, from 7 to 10, actually. From 7 to 10. Why mm-hmm. don't I know that? I followed you at 10 for five years, right? So, yeah, from 7 to 10. And he's also a senior editor at In These Times magazine, former adjunct faculty at UIC, journalist for multiple publications. And in my opinion, one of our uh, sages, one of the sages of our community, Having learned from you, Salim, listened to you, and the depth of knowledge that you have is just mind blowing. So, uh, thank you, brother. I appreciate that, man. And well, I, I'm, I'm saying it because it's true. Anyone who knows me knows that I don't fluff my words. So, <laughs> you know, I, I say what is true. And so, Salim, to hear that, it's like wow. And at the time, you were 21 years old. Yes, yes, sir. 21 I, years old. Yeah, yeah. I got shot, man, and and that that turned me even. In fact, that's what made me, uh, that's what radicalized me to, to, to a great extent because, um, I had to stay in the service as I recuperated. Mm. And as soon as I, as soon as I was discharged, I joined the Black Panther Party. Got um, it. so I was, I was, I, I was, you know, appreciative of King, mm-hmm. but I, I thought he had, he had the wrong perspective. I thought revolution was the only answer at that time. Got it. Got um, it. Yeah. Okay. I, I later mellowed as well. Um, I, and, and, and again, you know, his, his wisdom has reined me back in, in a sense. So I want to talk about your experience with the Black Panther Party, but mm-hmm. I want to jump first, right? 
And uh, by the way, we got Emmanuel Leonard in the studio. So, Emmanuel, if you have any questions for Salim that pop into your mind, please, by all means. And uh, we'll be getting Domati's perspective in a moment in terms of a millennial before the end of the hour. But I want to jump. So I want to kind of do a hyper jump to where you began to mellow out. And the ideologies of King began to, in some ways, maybe to absorb to a point where they influenced certain aspects of you. And, and I'm curious which of those ideologies really stood out for you? You know, his, the notion that, you know, that there's a spiritual quality to nonviolence mm. that I had mm-hmm. neglected to appreciate when I was, when I was uh, growing up. And that is, you know, it concerns our own response to injustice. It concerns disciplining our own emotions to deal with the, the kind of disappointments we find. So it, it's kind of, it's as therapeutic internally as it is effective uh, politically. Mm-hmm. And and I I, under, I understood Dr. King from another from another angle, another angle of vision. Uh, and I, and his actually his profundity became more apparent to me. He you know I, I saw how multidimensional he was really in his approach. He he was doing a lot of things at the same time, things that we didn't even realize. I I, I see now. And um, and so I, I gained enormous appreciation for the man and for the way he the way he um, fit into that time in history, the way mm-hmm. he used used that time in history mm-hmm. to deal with issues beyond political uh, yeah. Yeah. effects. You know? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. No, thanks for sharing that. So I so now that you you shared that piece of it, I would love for you to go back to your experience within the Black Panther Party, and maybe and, and help us with time frame, right? Because at this point, Dr. King has been assassinated. I'm sure that in the black community, there's confusion, right? And when I say confusion, likely um, there are many who want to continue to follow the path of Dr. King. Um, but then there are others who are, I'm sure, infuriated that this yes. has happened. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they may move to the other side, right, of saying, hey, there is something that we need to do forcibly to ensure, you know, our freedom, um, our civil rights. Uh, yes. You know, where were you with all of that, and what was your experience in the Black Panther Party? Well, you know, the, the assassination of King, of course, propelled a lot of people into more more radical movements because they concluded that King's methods were, in, were ineffective, and that um, if you profess nonviolence, all they'll do is kill you. Mm. And so we have to we have to chart another course. And so I think it gave a a big impetus to the Panther Party at that time. Uh, it experienced a pretty vigorous spurt growth during mm. that period. Got it. You know, sixty eight. You know, sixty nine. That had. In fact, that was the year later. That year was the year that that Fred Hampton. Was assassinated. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and so you know, a lot of people opted for more radical expressions. Mm-hmm. Not just the Panther Party, but also you know the cultural nationalists were also strong. That's like Karing, Ron Karinga and in, in, in on the West Coast, and Amamu Baraka on the East Coast, and here mm-hmm. in Chicago, uh, Haki Mahabuti mm-hmm. and a few other people, Conrad Warrell. A lot of people were opting for for black nationalism. Got it. For, for were you Africa, in Chicago yet, Salim? At that time, were you? No, in? I wasn't. Okay. I, I wasn't in Chicago. I was. I was uh, still based in 
and um, on on the East Coast, okay. uh, New York, New Jersey area. In fact, I was going to Rutgers, Rutgers University okay. at the time. Okay. And eventually, I became a little bit disenchanted with the Panthers. It seemed like they were all catharsis and little program. And, uh, and, and, and tell me, they, and tell me what you mean by that. Uh well, uh, we did a lot of provocative things, man. Mm. Like for example, we had some very admirable programs. We had a tutorial program for for young kids in our community. We had a medical screening program for uh, sickle cell anemia and those mm-hmm. kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And we enlisted medical professionals to do work, but it was all volunteer, uh, all voluntary for uh-huh. them. And we had to really <laughs> insist that they do it. And much of what we did amounted to extortion. You know, uh, uh... we didn't have any, we didn't have a self-sustaining funding base. We were basically acting on, on activism and, and anger. Mm-hmm. And so we would say that the store owners, you know, either you donate or your store might not be here in the morning, that kind of stuff. Ah, uh, got it. Yep. yep. So that was ineffective. And I began to see there was a group that was more serious about all of this and quite very serious about building their own institutions, not talking much, but simply getting to work and doing what was necessary. And that was a nation of Islam. And that attracted me mm. at the time. Okay. So I moved from the Panther Party to the nation and became a writer for, for the paper. The, the uh, what at the time was Muhammad Speaks. Okay. I was writing incidentally at the time. From, I was the first black reporter hired for Associated Press in, in Newark, New Jersey. Incidentally, during ah. all of this period, and so I was I was actually writing for the AP <laughs> and writing for Muhammad Speaks at the same time. Wow. <laughs> that, that that had to be quite the experience. It was quite the experience. Um, talk and, and talk about. Uh, I know a lot of us in Domati. You could you could definitely chime in here. But for those of us who are listening to you, right away, I think about the side hustle, right? So being a corporate executive and then having my own thing, and if the fear of you know going to work every day and then finding out about your side hustle <laughs> that is really your passion, right? Yes. 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 Yeah, so I, I imagine yeah. you were experiencing some of that. Well, yeah, you know, to a certain extent. But, you know, it was ironic, man. In the nation, you had to be clean cut. That was the ideal. So that helped. A lot lot of my employers thought I was just a clean cut conservative Negro coming to work every day. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I didn't have the big afro that that was in style during those times of defiance and whatnot. So they they thought I was, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. simply putting my shoulder to the wheel, man. Well, it's funny because when you when you think about it, some of the most radical of us are clean cut. Yes. I mean, Dr. King, Malcolm X. Yes, uh, I'm looking at Doma T myself, right? <laughs> and, and some of, and some of our ideals, I think if people really got into our heads, they'd be like, whoa, you know, yes. uh, we've got to watch true. this brother. <laughs> so, um, but you know, at the time, it, your, your militants are sometimes judged by the size of your afro. Absolutely. Uh-huh. <laughs> Absolutely. It's funny how not much has changed. Like now, it's your militants is judged by the the length of your locks or something yeah. like that. Yeah, it's, <laughs> everything comes full circle. Very, very interesting. Well, Celine, thank you. I, I want to. So, what I want to do is I, I want to share real quick my perspective of King. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and I would love for both of you all to chime in on, on it as well in terms of what you think about this. But. So as a Gen Xer, I can really appreciate your experience of Dr. King because, one, I learned some things in this conversation that I did not know. And the other thing, Salim, is it gives me an appreciation for individuals who uh, may not have been down for the movement. I remember asking my grandmother 
some time ago, we were driving together. My grandmother is 97 years old. So you, you, you oh, man. right. Ooh. Yeah, absolutely. So her perspective of the movement is very different. Right. Mm-hmm. And you know what I, what I romanticize in my mind based on the relationship I have to King as a Gen X or someone who was born in 1976 after a lot of the, the, um, the heated portions of the movement had happened. And by the way, not really comprehending the movement itself until, you know, maybe for another decade or a decade and a half. Uh When I asked my grandmother, I was hoping that she would say that she was in the streets of Chicago marching with King. Right. And that's what I hoped. What she shared with me is at the time she was middle age. She had children, eight to be exact. And no way would she find herself in a situation where she could be hurt and ruined the economic opportunities she currently had to take care of her family That's mm-hmm. right. as a single woman. Right. So for her, King was a troublemaker mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and he was someone that had come to Chicago and riled up everyone, the black folks and white folks included, because she worked as a nurse, mostly employed by white people. Mm-hmm. Right. So for her, it was, you know, Hey, what do you think of King? And she said that, you know, she would give her, I think he's out here causing trouble. And she, and, and by the way, she wasn't, you know, you'd say, you know, kind of brown nosing. Mm-hmm. That was her real perspective, right? In terms of what she told me, that was her perspective on the movement because she, they had figured out up here in the North in Chicago how to coexist in some ways. And yes, there wasn't a, a measure of equality, but you know, it was working. I'm taking care of my family. Okay. Right. I have a roof over my head. I have a vehicle to get back and forth to work. I have some change in the bank. And, um, who is this coming <laughs> here, activating our young people, activating our children, putting them I'm in harm's way? Right. Yeah. I think yeah. it's actually refreshing to hear you give that perspective because. Hey, Dominic T. What's going on, Salim? How you doing, brother? I'm all right, my brother. I haven't heard your voice in a while. I, same here. Well, I actually get to hear you every Saturday night, but uh, I haven't had a chance to talk to you directly, so this is a true treat for me. Yes, sir. Man, I, you, I love it. Yeah, and I think when I listen to this perspective, it's real refreshing because King has become kind of like the prototype, the you know, the standard bearer of what it means to be an activist, what it meant to grow up in that time period, to grow up in the 60s. And uh, and we don't hear that perspective. When you hear people right now who disagree with Colin Kaepernick, they're like, what would King say? Back in the day, we had unity. Everybody thought the same thing. Mm -hmm. We kind of we got this revisionist history where we forget that there were people who had figured out how to live life, how to develop a livelihood, take care of their families. And that he was disrupting that and making their workplaces, you know, uncomfortable. Absolutely. And and I I love the word you just used, Domoti, disruption. Because one of the things as human beings uh, that we don't like is change and disruption. Right. right. And I I even think of this movement currently right now with, you know, the NFL and and Colin Kaepernick. And what what I find is, you know, so my take on it is, well, if there's a brother Mm -hmm. who is being treated unfairly and he is in an establishment called the National Football League and I know what it is to be a brother who was in a corporate environment being treated unfairly, who has skill sets that people are looking over. I know how that feels. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then I am standing by that brother, no matter what the sacrifice may be. Right. So that means that on Sundays, I'm not flipping on the NFL, you know, and by the way, like I found out this morning, listening to listening to WVON with the NBC update that the Patriots won. I said, Oh, okay. They won again. I I have no, I have no idea what's going on right Right, now. Right. right, right. Now, now here's the thing. 
when I step into the barbershop and I have conversations about this, you know, I'm a disruptor. And so it's Colin Kaepernick. And this is ridiculous, man. And there's so many excuses and reasons why it's okay. Right. Because many of us do not want to interrupt the flow of our everyday. We do not want to interrupt the flow of fantasy football and what that makes me feel like to be a champion. Exactly. exactly. Right. Of this fantasy league. And, and so instead, what we do is we say, Oh, Colin, you know what? He wasn't going to play anyway. Right. 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 <laughs> right? You know, he wasn't going to play anyway. And you know, he, he just making it hard for everybody. Ah. Well, no, just, you're right, man. It, it is we get habituated to uh, uh-huh. our way of life. No, no matter how negative it may be, uh, it's what we are used to, and anything that threatens that sense of uh, order mm-hmm. is is rejected, man, or resisted. And really, it's this desire among marginalized people to find some sense of normalcy, right? Like mm-hmm. you, you want to be normal. You just want to have. I often think about. I think about this day in and day out. Like as I was thinking about what King's legacy meant, and you look at the fact that he got a PhD in his early twenties, that he was doing all of this in his twenties. I think about what would King be? Who would he be? Had he not had to fight for civil rights, man, we're gonna talk about that. <laughs> and, and, and we're gonna talk about what if King was afraid. What if King was afraid? What if he was too afraid? I mean, think about what it takes as a man mm-hmm. who has a family, by the way. I, and, and, mm-hmm. and I think about this, right? Because I have a wife and a son now. And if something called me forward, right, to disrupt the normalcy of what's happening right now in the United States, where I'm putting myself in harm's way, like how much courage does, does that take? Not oh, yeah. as just a man, right, as a single man, because there's some things that you can do courageously as a single man, because you know you are the only one who will get hurt. Yeah. But yeah. to know that the people you love could consequently, consequently be hurt. You know, uh, I was listening to uh, David Letterman's interview of Barack Obama. And Barack Obama, one of the things he said about having children that I could identify with is that it's like your heart is outside your body walking around. <laughs> mm. Wow. Right? Yeah. wow. Right. So imagine here's a man who is married. And has children. Mm-hmm. And by the way, they're being threatened all the time. Yeah. And he is yeah. still pushing forward to, for what he believes in. And, and then, and then he has these FBI, um, shadows who, yeah. who are, you know, talking about, about his indiscretions and whatnot and, and, and trying to discredit him that way. Yeah. Absolutely. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the tension? I mean, for him. The tension and then even the tension in his home as he's doing this, where right. your wife knows what you're doing is righteous. And by the way, the FBI is ensuring that anything that you do that is slightly wrong or wrong, period. Right. Mm-hmm. She knows about it. Right. Whew. Yeah. Pressure. Pressure. Talk about pressure. Yeah. So what what I want to do now is, you know, my, my Celine, first, thank you for sharing. So. One, eloquently and authentically, your experience of, of Dr. King. Uh, I definitely want to hear yours, Doma T. Mm. But so here I am, a Gen Xer. You know, I, I remember that, you know, maybe about 12, it was about the sixth grade where I really began to form a relationship with black history and who Dr. King and some of the other members of the movement were, right? Mm. And it wasn't until... I was a lot older, probably in my thirties where I began to study Dr. King and I made Dr. King one of my virtual mentors. And what I mean by that is I decided that, you know, Dr. King was the type of man that I wanted to emulate in terms of what he stood for and the courage he had behind what he stood for. 
And I decided to study his life and by studying his life, make him a mentor, someone that I could check into or check in with right virtually to say, you know, I'm scared right now. Mm-hmm. Dr. King, what would you do? And having absorbed his readings, absorbed his speeches, often he would speak to me and tell me. Mm. And so yeah. the, the top three things that I've taken from Dr. King as a result of that, the first is this notion of personal immortality. And I believe that one of the things that pushed Dr. King forward, even when he was deathly afraid and he had those pressures that we talked about is that he knew that he was living life, not just in this moment, but for his own legacy and for the immortality of the ideals that he talked about. Mm -hmm. And I believe that's one of the things that pushed him and gave him the strength and the courage to navigate some of the things that he had to navigate that notion of personal immortality that what I'm doing right now, while it may feel a certain type of way that if I continue to push that this is something that 50 years later will make an impact and have an impression on people and steal these ideologies that I'm talking about in these, this movement that I'm a part of will still have an impact on them and move, you know, black America forward. That's one of the first lessons mm-hmm. okay. that, that I learned from him. And, uh, you know, and what I get more than anything is that, you know, you can't cheat death. We all will die. But what it means that it, what it means is that as human beings, we all have the potential to live our lives in such a way that our legacy becomes immortal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was that was the first piece that I learned from him. That's a powerful that. lesson, bro. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's that's yeah. That's heavy. The second thing that I learned from Dr. King was this concept of shadow casting. And this is similar to the first, but Dr. King talked about shadow casting in, in some of his books. And what he meant by this is, you know, the ability to be the type of man that the things that I do cast a shadow on a domotee, right? Mm-hmm. Or cast a shadow on an Emmanuel and they have a profound impact on who you become. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Right, mm. right, right. Has a profound impact on who you are. And he, he got this concept from two people in particular. The first was Henry David Thoreau, right? And civil disobedience. Right. And, and what he talked about was how Henry David Thoreau, his writing of civ- civil disobedience and what he learned from the life of Henry David Thoreau and uh, Thoreau in a lot of ways provided him a roadmap that he wouldn't have had otherwise. Mm-hmm. So Henry David Thoreau, based on who he was, cast a shadow on Dr. King. Mm-hmm. And Dr. King admits, you know, admitted that he would not be who he is without the life of a Henry David Thoreau. Let me interject here, Linnell. I mean, I, that's another aspect of Dr. King's um, um, influence. I mean, his, his willingness to yeah. acknowledge influences from other traditions and other thinking, other ethnic groups, you know, that we that we have an ecumenical potential. I mean, our diet is, is global, and mm-hmm. we shouldn't restrict ourselves to kind of provincial ideas. 
Yeah. 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 I love that. And, and you, you raise a good point, both of you, because I'm thinking even about Pan-African movements in modern day, like right mm-hmm. now. Yeah. And there are certain people that you're supposed to read, quote unquote. You know yeah. what I mean? Yep. You're supposed yep. to be in mm-hmm. tune with Marcus Garvey, supposed yep. to be in tune with ja- James Baldwin, certain things you're supposed to read. And then mm-hmm. anything kind of outside of that that may have come from other cultures, it's a little foreign. And what it does is it limits your perspective. Not Absolutely. To, not, and that doesn't cast aspersion on the, the people that we learn from the black arts movement, from civil rights movement, but it also just means that we can expand even beyond that and see where they got some of their concepts from. Absolutely. And one of the questions that I always ask myself is what if Thoreau had never gone to prison for what he believed? Hmm. You know, then Dr. King, that concept of that they taught in civil rights movement in terms of, you know, we can go to prison. I was, I was listening to watching David Letterman, John, he interviewed John Lewis and John Lewis is like, I, you know, I've been to prison. You know, like how do you like those David Letterman, Letterman interviews, by the way? You know, I only watched the first one, but let me tell you, it was it was actually very insightful, insightful into the life of you know President Obama, but also insightful into this the civil rights movement. He he did a phenomenal job looking into the civil rights movement, and then he also brought John Lewis, Senator John Lewis, into the conversation. And mm-hmm. uh, Senator John Lewis talked about this whole concept of going to jail and how he's gone to jail over twenty times before he was a senator, and five times since he's been a senator. Hmm. In terms of pushing the movement, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, and, and that in itself, if you remember, John Lewis didn't go to uh, President Trump's inauguration. And President Trump insinuated that he was lazy and did nothing. Right. <laughs> and it's just kind of like, really? Wow. I mean, here is one of our heroes. Exactly. Um, but once again, this whole concept of going to jail came from uh, Henry David Thoreau. Yeah. 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 And then the other person that he talked about was Dr. Mordecai Johnson. And then, of course, Mahatma Gandhi's teachings from the movement in, in India. Right. Mm-hmm. So that the concept of personal immortality was the, the second piece. The third piece for me was this idea of somebodiness. Mm. Right. And, uh, you know, think about I think about the plight of African-Americans at that time. And, and Salim, you probably can speak to this better than I can. You know, so please fill in whatever blanks and we got some phone calls coming in. So we will definitely be getting to those phone calls at the top of the hour. Mm-hmm. But here we are, you know, and thinking about my grandmother who said, look, I, you know, Dr. King came in and upset the apple cart. Life was good. Right. But at the same time, she was disadvantaged. And this idea of somebodyness, right? Somebody, I am somebody. Mm-hmm. And, and this idea that the fact that we must develop in ourselves a deep sense of somebodiness, right? I mean, he was talking about self-actualization back in a time when people didn't talk about that type of thing. That's true. That's true. Hey, well, except Reverend Ike. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, right. So from from that perspective, you know, to me, as a matter of fact, I want to play. I want to play a speech. A short snippet of a speech that Dr. King talked when he talked about somebodyness right now. I'm, I'm going to play it real quick and then definitely want to move on to you, Domo T, and then we're going to get to some phone calls real quick. But here is a clip of Dr. King speaking on somebodyness. I went to high school on the other side of town, to the Booker T. Washington High School. At that time, it was the only Negro high school in Atlanta. And I had to get the bus in what was known as the Fourth Ward to ride over to the west side to the Booker Washington High School. And in those days, 
rigid patterns of segregation existed on the buses so that Negroes had to sit in the back of the buses. You know about this. Whites were seated in the front. And often, uh, if whites didn't get on the buses, those seats were still reserved for whites only. So Negroes had to stand up over empty seats. And I went through that experience going to school at the Book of Washington High School. But my parents taught me something very early. Somehow they instilled within me a feeling of somebodyness. And they would say to me over and over again that you are just as good as any child in Atlanta, Georgia. And I would get on that bus day after day. I would end up having to go to the back of that bus with my body. But every time I got on that bus, I left my mind up on the front seat. <laughs> I love you. Yeah. And I said to myself, one of these days I'm going to put my body up there where my mind is. <laughs> yeah. How about that? How about I like that? that? I love that. Or some bodiness, right? So, yeah. I mean, so you can imagine the impact that's having on me in my early 30s when I'm going through all of these different lessons that I'm getting from Dr. King. So if anybody wonders, like, you know, how, how did Linnell Harris get to be Linnell Harris? You know, it was this research shifted me, mm -hmm. as you can imagine, right? shifted me and shifted my perspective on the movement, but shifted my perspective on my own personal power and, yes, and the impact that I can make on people as a result of having learned some of this. Um, and I have other virtual mentors, but of them, I, I would say Dr. King has uh, given to me uh, repeatedly, a, a, as you can see, um, in terms of little small clips like that that I listen to that uh really moved me forward right so mm -hmm. those are my three those are my top three. <laughs> oh, those are those are powerful um effects man you know and again like he's he's such a a, a towering figure mm -hmm. that he has those kinds of uh those kinds of effects and mm -hmm. on on many levels man you know even tactically you, you think now about how he utilized the creed of this country to, to force it to 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 uh to, to make changes that were very very difficult for it to make uh, but but the creed its own belief in its own creed he used effectively mm -hmm. to to motivate this country in ways that probably wouldn't have been motivated had someone less skillful been at work trying to do that yeah yeah so well if you just joined us you're listening to inspirational perspective with Linnell harris i have double t pongo in the studio with me and salim muwakil on the phone We've been talking about the life of Dr. King 50 years later, uh, Dr. King's legacy. And you're getting three perspectives from three generations, uh, a boomer, a Gen Xer and a millennial. And we'll, we're going to be hearing Domati's perspective and highlights of Dr. King's life as a millennial from him at the top of the hour. But before we do that, I want to take a couple of phone calls to close out the hour. And so we'll start with Malcolm. Malcolm, how are you? Welcome to the show. Good morning. How are you doing, gentlemen? Well, good morning. I want to talk about the people who went before, the ones who uh, sort of created the consciousness of the Dr. King or Malcolm X or Elijah Muhammad, people like uh, my great-grandfather, okay. who was a master carpenter in uh, Union, Alabama. 
Uh, the white people would come to him to, to come to him to do work. He could build your house from the ground up. A white insurance man hit on my grandmother sitting on the porch one day. Mm. And uh, his name was Thomas Thompson. He was half Indian, half African American, and uh, he uh, went and got his rifle, came back, didn't say a word, knocked that white man down the steps off of his porch, and drug him out of his front gate. Mm. And all the women in the family were just screaming and hollering and crying, they're going to kill you, you know. Mm-hmm. And he got his shotgun and sat on the porch and said, all right, I'm ready, let them, let them <laughs> Let's come get me. Okay, now the sheriff, when they heard about it, and they told him who it was, he said, you talking about that crazy Negro, Thomas Thompson? He said, no, I'm not going down there saying anything to Tom. Negro is crazy, okay? My uncle, when I lived in Pennsylvania for a while, there was a racist white teacher who paddled me so hard with one of those wooden paddles, mm. something I didn't even do. Mm. And my uncle, who was a coal miner and a master hunter and stuff like that, a union man, he grabbed me, took me up to school. I thought he was going to take me up to school and spank me in front of the uh, class <laughs> like sometimes people used to do. Right. Mm-hmm. He went in there and he had his rifle with him. And he took uh, a pa- that paddle down off the wall that this racist white guy beat me with and made him bend over the uh, desk and beat him with wow. that. What? Okay. Wow. They, they called the sheriff. By him being a coal miner, he and the sheriff were friends because they were coal miners in your union together. The sheriff came, said, Tom, uh, his name was Tom, too, Thomas Allen. He said, Tom, give me that rifle. My uncle gave him the rifle. He put it in the back of his squad car. He said, now, you get the heck out of here. Take your nephew and go home. He said, I got this. I'll handle this, okay? Wow. My grandmother. <laughs> You tell me, uh, told a white woman off so bad one time, uh, we were Catholic. She used to sell medals and things and statues, uh, and this is, a, is a St. Agatha's on the west side. Mm-hmm. And, um, the woman kept asking her questions, and my grandmother told her, she said, look, don't ask me about my damn business. Now, this is the daughter of Thomas Thompson, okay? Okay. Ask me about my damn business. Say, so you white folks got a bad habit of asking us Negroes all our person, but don't ask me about my damn business, okay? So I grew up in an atmosphere like that. My mm. mother used to get, uh, who was a beautiful dark-skinned black woman, would get all dressed up and go around the places where she knew down the world they weren't going to hire her, and she would dress me up in my little suit. And uh, we went to Marshall Fields one time, and she sat there with her legs crossed, trying to sing in the office, black or white, and went up there to fill out an employment application just as big, sat up there and did her, her nails. And the white woman was just, man, they were livid. And the personnel manager was livid. Kept asking her, well, uh, don't you have somewhere to go, honey? We have to application. <laughs> so came from a family of radicals. Okay? Yep. And then I became radical myself as a teenager. So we need to talk about the people like uh, my great-grandfather, name, my grandmother, my uncle, and people like that mm-hmm. who created the consciousness of people like uh, Martin Luther King and Elijah Muhammad and all those people and tie this whole thing together, our whole history of this consciousness. So we need to talk about that. I love King and everything he did. Let's talk about the whole thing what made King, and now what is making uh, what we have become now. All we say to America is be true to what you said on paper. <laughs> if I lived in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country, maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. 
Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. We're back. You're listening to Inspirational Perspective. I'm your host, Linnell Harris, Chicago's very own life coach right here on WVON 1690 AM, the talk of Chicago. Well, if you missed the first hour, I'm telling you, you missed a phenomenal, phenomenal beginning to the conversation on Dr. King 50 years later. Three generations, three perspectives. I have on the phone right now with me, Celine Muwakil. And in the studio with me, Doma T. Pongo, Emmanuel Leonard is also in the studio helping us out. Um, Patrick, technical producer, who is doing a phenomenal job. But uh, we've had a phenomenal discussion so far. That discussion was highlighted at the end by a phone call from Malcolm, who shared um, in a lot of ways. And Doma T., you have some perspective on this uh, off the air. So why don't you share the impact that Malcolm's call had on you? And then I, I love to formally introduce you. And uh, here are the three perspectives you have. Yeah, really quickly, man. Malcolm, thank you for your call because you really showed the impact that man that managing your family unit can have on revolution. I think sometimes we think so much about revolution and activism in ways that are outside of our homes, outside of our neighborhoods, but it really starts at home. And when you have a grandfather who stands up for his family in that way, when you have an uncle who stands up for his family in that way, and a mother who is as audacious as yours was, um, and it's still some values in you that you would then come and uh, broadcast to hundreds of thousands right here on this radio station. So that legacy lives on through you. And they didn't have to necessarily go out into the street and do it. They, they did it right from their front porch with their rifles in hand. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, I think that sometimes we get away from that, especially in my generation. You think that tweeting means you're an activist or, <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, and yeah. all of those things have their place, but, uh, managing your family unit in a real sincere way and in a strong way, in a way with integrity that impacts the next generation has its place too. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. So don't tell you what you're going to do. I got, I got a few phone calls that they've been waiting for a while. Let's go. I want to hear. I want to clear some of them out and hear from them real quick and then hear from you. And so let's go for it. I have Anita, Anita. How are you? Good morning. How are you? I'm well. Okay. I wanted to say something about, First of all, I need to know when Salim said he was shot. I didn't hear exactly the circumstances you were shot in, Salim. Hey, so, so you know what, Anita? I'm going to ask you, you and any listener that wants to hear more of what Salim shared at the beginning of the show, because what we want from Salim is what's happening right here, right now. You can go to my YouTube channel later mm-hmm. and hear the entire interview with Salim, or okay. um, which is uh, Linnell Harris, L-I-N-A-L, or you can go to the Inspirational Perspective Facebook page and pick it all up. And check out the whole thing. But uh did you did you have anything else for Celine? 
No, no, my comment was going to be, I didn't hear if he said he got shot in the war or he was shot with the protest, but don't talk about it. But anyway, this is what my comment is, Salim. You know, I listen to you all the time. I listened last night, (laughs) too. I didn't call in. But anyway, I think we need to change this movement from nonviolence to non-oppression, okay, because then it would incorporate some of the military strategies needed if you have to go against the powers that be that are oppressing you. You cannot keep saying nonviolent and they're using violence on you. You have to make sure that they cannot just come in your community and massacre your children and think it's okay because they're the ones that's ruling. So I think the problem between the so-called military movement of what they said uh, Elijah Muhammad was versus what Dr. King said, you know, that Dr. King, that's for forgiveness of Caucasian people. If they want out, you're supposed to jump out right away because the people that's coming in to protect their children aren't necessarily coming in with a kind attitude to you killing and massacring their families, okay? So you got to change that from nonviolent to non-oppressive. Now, they've had many, many, many years to get this straight, and they haven't. So some of that's going to cause death to their own children. And if you don't move your children out of harm's way by doing the right thing, then you're going to open yourself up for your own children being massacred by your own way of doing things. Because remember when Moses, Pharaoh kept putting plagues on him, and then Moses said, well, the next plague that you let run out your mouth is going to affect your family. Mm. So if you can live by the standards you want me to live by then and live, then maybe I might think about it. Psych, I'm not going to do it. All and right. for all those black, can I say one more thing? Mm-hmm. For all those black people that think they're going to take the Jesus movement and put it on just the African-American people and not on the Caucasian people, you might as well step over there with the Caucasian people because I believe in non-oppression. And if you're in my way, I don't care what color you are, you're going to get it. Go learn your religion or whatever you're doing because people are not going to take that smack off of you talking about you're black and you're oppressing me worse than Caucasian people. Got it, got it. Anita, thank you for your perspective. Salim, your thoughts? I was just asking your your thoughts on what she shared. I mean, she shared two different concepts. I definitely have my thoughts. I can go in as you collect yourself if you like, but uh, I think she was pointing it towards you. uh, You know, again, one of the things about Dr. King that has impressed me as I as I study, because I'm always studying, I'm always a Mm -hmm. student, Mm -hmm. and and I begin to appreciate his ahisma. Uh, ahimsa is actually what, what do you call it? Ahisma is like a, a principle in a Vedanta religion of mm-hmm. do no harm. It's a principle in a lot of uh, the earliest right. spiritual practices. Just do no harm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the highest form of compassion for humanity, I think. And it's also, you know, a courageous thing to do. And, and often, we don't see that. And so I, there are tactical things we have to do, though, as I think Sister Anita was talking about. There are tactical things we have to attend to that make our lives better on this practical realm. But I think in a larger sense that King had other things that were of concern to him. Got it. Got it. Don't want to see anything from you, brother, in terms uh, of what you talk about. I'll get into uh, into it a bit when I talk about the things that impacted me about King. But I think mm-hmm. um, I think Celine's point about King's the importance of King as a spiritual guide and that he followed a spiritual order. Mm-hmm. I think that informed a lot of how he moved and a lot of the way that he, he went about activism. So we can't neglect that even if we disagree his, with his tactics, that it came from a place of a spiritual order. Yeah. And, and that was one of his, the biggest things I learned from him. Cause as I learned about King, I actually, the year that I started to read more about Dr. King was the same year I got saved and gave mm-hmm. my life to Christ. Okay. And um, I read two books around that time. 
I read uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. I read the Bible, of course. And then a few months later, I read the autobiography of Dr. King. Mm-hmm. And I started to see the importance of a spiritual order. And so mm-hmm. when you have, when you feel like you have a spiritual mandate on your life, right. you move in ways that aren't necessarily practical. Yeah. And I don't yeah. even know if and, King. And, and people won't understand. And, and people won't understand. And yeah. I don't know if King <laughs> even necessarily uh, using logic thought about nonviolence as a tool. I think that mm-hmm. was kind of a spiritual mandate for him. Got it. Got it. Got it. You know, here are my thoughts on it too. She may mention of, you know, black Christians versus white Christians. And I talked about this on the show before that I think often, you know, it's unfortunate that we have these tags, right? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, a lot of people can wear a particular title mm-hmm. who don't necessarily really truly uh, line up with the ideologies of Christianity. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. And I think what happens is we look at the whole and we say, well, you know, white Christians are acting this way. Black Christians are doing this. And we begin to separate based on what we see mm-hmm. when in essence, truly, if all Christians were being Christ like, at least in the United States of America, we would not have the situation we have, period. Mm-hmm. So to me, then it, it is no longer a conversation about Christianity or black Christians and white Christians, it becomes more of a conversation about personal integrity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And let's take out Christianity. Let's take out Islam. Let's take out any other religion. And let's just talk about personal integrity. Who is it that you intend to be? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And are you aligning with that thing? And if you're not, you're out of integrity. I can't tell you, Domati, that you're out of integrity. I can't tell you, Salim, that you're out of integrity. What matters is who you all intend to be. Mm-hmm. And how you intend to show up. And that's the thing that I think we all need to be looking at ourselves. Who am I being? I'm not going to look over and say, well, Don Matisse said he was saved. Mm, mm, I can't mm. believe he's doing X, Y, and Z. Right. And if it's bothering me that much, then instead of being offended by it, then let me step into a spirit of courage and approach you mm, mm, and say, hey, I see something over here. It's been impacting me. And I want to have a conversation about it. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And as two men, we can engage in that dialogue. Mm-hmm. But I think often, too often, we're, we're looking at people from the outside. We're making judgments and that consumes us. And so as a result, I can't step into my own personal integrity and my own personal power and push forward on the things that matter to me mm-hmm. because I'm distracted by what other people are doing. Absolutely. Right. I mean, and, and you know, that applies to this observation of Dr. King as well, because I remember um, at one point when I was teaching some college students, there was a, a sentiment that Malcolm X, this is during the time really when Malcolm was being marketed very mm-hmm. effectively by Spike uh, for his movie mm-hmm. and yeah. X, yeah. X hats were all over the place. And, yeah. you know, they yeah. even had X potato chips. Um, <laughs> and so Dr. King was given, given short shrift at that time. He was seen mm-hmm. as something that was passe, Mm-hmm, something mm-hmm. who was who was uh you know represented an ancient ideology and, and that's pretty much it. that same thing people were choosing you know a team and the the other team was the loser they were choosing mm-hmm. team malcolm and team martin yeah, yeah. were the losers and, and 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 you know that kind of thing often happens as well and i'm glad that we're i think we've seen to have gone beyond that yeah, in some ways, I think we still have a lot to do. As a matter of fact, I was listening to your show last night, Salimi, and, and we were talking about some of the uh, the current discourse among African-American, quote, unquote, leaders, right? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I appreciate your perspective on that because 
we got to get past this thing. And those of us who call ourselves leaders, then we need to really step up to the plate of leadership and fully employ the competence of leadership and move forward. So, all right. So Domati Pongo, he's here. Gladys, I see you. Art, I see you. Robert, Sell, want you to know, just acknowledge you that we see the phone calls. What I want to do, though, is give Domati the floor because one of the reasons we have him in the studio is we want to get the millennial perspective of of Dr. King. And real quick, for those of you who don't know Domati, Domati is also a former WVON teammate. And Domati now anchors the Saturday morning newscast on Chicago's WGN radio. And he is the host of Brainstorm with Domati, the podcast. He's also a multimedia consultant who produces and hosts content in partnership with the Chicago Urban League. He's engaged with the arts community. And he is also the host of the Artist Lounge, open mic in acclaimed art galleries and creative spaces on the south side and west sides of Chicago, of which I have attended. And you, my brother, are an amazing artist as well. Thank you. Um, so thank you for being here on the show. Just one correction. You call me a former WVON teammate. I'm an eternal Eternal. WVON I like teammate. that. I like that. That's a good correction. That's a good. This that's is a family good, right here. A good <laughs> correction. Mm-hmm. Um, it's great to be back, y'all. Yeah, man. So Doma T, you know. Here you are, you're, you're a millennial, you know, we have our perspective of millennials, us boomers and Xers, and I'm curious, you know, what did you learn from Dr. King and what perspectives do you have on Dr. King from your vantage point? So three things. So first was around the time that I started to dig deeper and learn more about King, I was probably about 19 years old and I went beyond what it was that I just read in my history books and I started to go into YouTube and looking at these speeches. And one of the first speeches that I saw is I looked up King it was like, this isn't the king. I think the title is something like, this isn't the king they talk about in your history books or something. Got it. And it's him talking about white supremacy and his dis- deep distrust of white supremacy. Mm. And in this speech, um, Celine would know the title of it. I can't remember the title of the speech, but it's the one where he's talking about reparations. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, can't, yeah. I know which one you mean. Yes, yeah. and, he, and, and it was around the time where he was promoting the Poor People's Campaign. I had never heard King, when presidents honor Dr. King, they never talk. They talk about, I have a dream. These any yeah. president has never spoken about this reparations. Well, I, I, I honestly think they took him out because of that. That's yeah. my personal opinion. Yeah, I think it was the poor people. Uh, you know, because he unified the races. Yeah, yeah. He was like, all right, guess what? We all poor people. And I think King had an epiphany and said, wait a second. You know, this is an economic thing. Right. And if I can unite, you know, poor black people and poor white people mm-hmm. into this thing and make this movement about the poor, I'll really gain some momentum. And I think that the the powers that be also saw what he was doing and said, oh, wait a second. This is why we established the institution of racism. We got to kill this man. Right, right, right. And so at, at 19 years old, that was a time when yeah, I knew who I was. What's that? I said, that's pretty cynical for you, my brother. Hey, you know what? Hey, one of the things I believe, uh, Brother Salim, you know, I know I'm often optimistic, right? Right, right. But one of the things I do believe, too, is, you know, in order to learn and protect ourselves and to advance, that we also have to take a look at history for what it what it is and say, well, what happened here? And if it's very negative, I have to be willing to accept that. Absolutely, my brother. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious, Celine. What do you think of that theory? Oh, I'm, I'm I think you're on to something, man. Uh, that that's always been the black bag, that you know, of, of American policy is, is unity between uh, black and white, a class unity, the Bacon mm-hmm. Rebellion. I mean, that whole tradition is, is absolutely frightening 
to the corporate structures that keep this country afloat, you know? So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. And that was the be- very beginning of racism. I mean, you know, so racism, when you start to look into the history books, you know, evolved in Europe, but it came over with the Europeans to America where they began to, you know, with some of the clashes of the poor between the rich mm-hmm. and the early colonies mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Where, where you had black landowners, right, yeah, who, yeah. who also had slaves. They began to realize, wait a second here. We got to figure out a, a different way to divide this thing up. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And, and that's where they said, hey, this this new thing that they've been doing around skin color. You know, what if we got these white folks out of this conversation and we made this only about brown skin, especially since we're profiting from African slaves? Exactly. And that's, that's where it came from. Yeah. You know, so that's yeah, why, did. in my opinion, when Dr. King began to unite the races and talk about poverty, they were like, whoa. Wait a second. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Around the time when Fred Hampton was killed, he started talking and started uniting mm-hmm. poor white people mm-hmm. uh, with the with the Black Panther movement. And he started to rebrand the Black Panther movement in a way around uh, being able to to do the, the, this intersectionality piece. And that's right. when that's right. when he ended mm-hmm. up getting killed as well. Yeah. So I think you made a, a, a poignant point there, my brother. So around so around that time, I knew who I was, but I didn't know how to present myself to the world to the public mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. i had just gotten into college i still was ingratiated in hip-hop culture but i saw king was the same way i was like he's much more revolutionary than he lets on when he's in yeah. these other spaces yeah so it allows him to move in different spaces absolutely perhaps i could take a page out of that book and so I that, like was, that. that was that was like kind that. of what and now i'm on wg and radio too. <laughs> you know but yeah no, that's absolutely kind of, absolutely but, but that that that's something that that kind of um so that stood out to me and then at that time, those were my formative spiritual years. And so as I read about the autobiography of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, I started to find out that they had visions all the time. Like you got uh, that scene where yeah. Malcolm X has a vision where he sees Honorable Elijah Muhammad. And then there's a, this vision where Martin says he's writing this letter and he hears the voice of God telling him to do some things. It's, it's a long story, but around that time, and I don't want to go into a, um, religious debate or a theological debate, but just about this thing where we are all spiritual beings. Absolutely. And people who have had a tremendous impact on this earth in some way contended with their spirituality, no matter what their faith may be. Gandhi was guided by a faith, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the Dalai Lama guided by mm-hmm. a faith. So there's something there. And so it let me know that there was a reality, a kinship to great people and their spiritual identity. And their spiritual connection. Absolutely. I 100% yeah. agree. Yeah. yeah. And that, that was that. And then the last piece was discipline. And I started looking at the A's that he did all these things. To me, King always kind of looked old. Like he always looked. Yeah. He was forever 40 in my mind. Yeah. Sorry, <laughs> yeah. 40 and old. My bad. Yeah. My bad. Yeah. <laughs> hey, no, it's all right. I get it. I get it. But yeah, he was all, he always looked, he always looked old. And I'm, then I find out that he had already had his PhD in his twenties. He led the mm-hmm. SNCC in his twenties and, he was doing all of this early on in his life. And I said, well, how do you do this? Like, what, what is, is discipline, you know? And so how could I become a more disciplined A great person? deal. I mean, when you listen to the, the speeches of Dr. King mm-hmm. and you, you listen to one, the eloquence, but the message and what it is that he's portraying. I mean, I don't know that this brother had a speech writer. I mean, Celine, correct me if I'm wrong, but he wrote a lot I, of no, those he speeches. Didn't, he, he didn't have a speech writer. No, this was coming off of his dome, man. He he was a, an eloquent speaker and a very competent speechwriter. He, he was he was well grounded in philosophical, yes. uh, you know, texts and whatnot. So he he came from a deep tradition of oratory, you know, of religious oratory. But he mm-hmm. added to that a kind of a scholarship, man. That was awesome. Yes. Yeah. 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 No, it, it was an art to it. It was an art to it. Mm-hmm. And and I mean, and 
as I think about his ability to how skilled he was as a writer, it made me think about all of the black leaders we have from Frederick Douglass, you name it. And I started to allude to this in the last hour. If not for having to contend with civil rights and, and social justice, who would these people be? Would, I mean, would, would, Mal- would Martin Luther King have been Steve Jobs? Like, would he have created the iPhone back then? I know. Would we have mm. had some black Henry yeah. Fords? Frederick Douglass could have very well been a president, mm-hmm. right? He could very have been. <laughs> and, and so I started to think about how I could apply some of these tactics, this discipline, and social justice stuff to things that I wanted to accomplish, not just for black people, but for myself and my family. And so that mm-hmm. I could be a bigger asset to black people at large after I, I received that or during at the same nice. time. Right. Nice. So those are some of the things I picked up. It's phenomenal. Phenomenal. Yes, sir. Yep. Beautiful. Brother. S- Salim, anything you would add to what well, Domiti no, just shared? I, I just, it just reminds me when, when Domiti was saying that, it reminded me a little bit. Uh, I was talking about the Panthers a little earlier and the Panthers had absolutely good intentions and were audacious in the way they, had, they said, look, if nobody's going to help us change and better our community, we're going to do it ourselves. Uh, yeah. Simple as that. Yeah. But the Panthers lacked discipline, the kind of discipline that was mm-hmm. necessary to, to get us away from the kind of dissipating lifestyles that we had become accustomed to. Yeah. And, and a lot of times we were supposed to be somewhere uh, and, and we, we didn't show up because we, mm. you know, fell victim to those lifestyles. Yeah. And, and, and I realized how necessary discipline was. And, and that, again, the Nation of Islam became like a beacon mm. in that way because yeah. it represented yeah. that discipline. And Dr. King, as uh, Bumati pointed out, also adhered to a strict kind of spiritual discipline that we, I think, didn't realize uh, at the time. And now we, we're beginning to see just how powerful that, that discipline was. You know, to, to, to that point, Salim, in, in listening to John Lewis's interview with David Letterman, one of the things he talked about was the training that mm-hmm. they went through. I mean, so mm-hmm. think about that, right? What I know about the movement is you could not be on the front lines unless you went through extensive training. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, think about the discipline that takes. I mean, you have to show up somewhere after work. You have to go through your training. Yeah. And the training wasn't just one day. I mean, and by the way, they antagonized you. They did all the things that they believed would happen to you. Mm-hmm. You had to. So in some ways, you were being hazed almost. Oh, yeah. By your own people to say, we need to make sure that you won't strike out. We, right. we need to make sure that you won't punch. And let me, uh, sorry to cut you off, but it makes me think about social justice movements now. I think mm-hmm. when we talk about this legacy, I think we skip that piece. We're like, wow, I can't believe these people sat at the lunch counters and allowed themselves to be spent on and beat. Right. And mm-hmm. they never struck back. They practiced that. They that practiced it. Easy, they, I mean, yeah, I mean, a, a, an extreme amount of discipline, a discipline that was anchored to a very clear what for. Mm-hmm. I know why I am doing this. Right? right. And we talk about personal goals. We talk about. You know, uh, personal efficacy, efficacy and what we want to do moving forward. I hope anyone listening can take from this that whatever it is that you want to achieve, whatever it is that you want to do, it takes a deep discipline and focus in a knowing what for, for why you're, you're looking to create that. Absolutely. Correct. So correct. All right. Well, with that, I want to pivot to a few phone calls before we go into what's next. We got about 28 minutes left, so I'm going to ask those of you who are on the phone to, you know, to be brief, as brief as you possibly can. We want to definitely, you know, hear you out and answer your questions, but I also want to ensure that I employ these two brilliant minds as effectively as I can in terms of what's next for America. So I'm glad if you're listening, please call back because you you held a a sufficient amount of time, and I want to honor that. But next we have Art. Art, how are you? Hey, good morning, young man. How are you doing? Brother? I'm well. Good morning. Brother. All right. Uh, first of all, you know, 
it bothers me when we intellectualize a way out of a thought or a principle. It seems like you're more spiritual, you're more this if you allow people to abuse you. And throughout the Bible and the Holy Quran, they show men that God respected, fought, bled, and died and went to war. Mm-hmm. But you're more spiritual if you allow someone to abuse you. I think it's a false normal to say that black people are violent somehow how we have to be learn to be more submissive. We were never violent towards white folks. Eighty percent of the people were passive True. and they allow white folks to do whatever they wanted to do to black people throughout slavery and all of that. So just keep saying that Oh, somehow we have to be more, be, allow them to abuse us more. And if you retaliate, you are less spiritual or you are less. So neither was 100% correct. I think we intellectualize things to make it comfortable for us to figure out that somehow God or the creator is going to use a bunch of whispers in your ear all the time to achieve a certain objective. You don't have to allow anyone to abuse you mentally physically or spiritually. You do whatever's necessary to maintain yourself. So I think it's a misnomer to Mm -hmm. uh, keep putting that out there. And to allow someone to spit on you and all that kind of stuff is ridiculous. That don't make you a smart man because you stand there and somebody spit in your face and kill your children. I think that is just not correct. So, so, all right, in terms terms of that, though, you know, given the position of blacks in the South, if they had picked up arms, they would have been slaughtered. Well, that is not true because I talked to a brother named Lamont. He showed uh, it's a bunch of brothers who do documentaries on a lot of men, black men, who went to war and fought against the French and people who supposed to have had more power or more this. But if you believe in a higher power than God, then either you do or you don't. Mm-hmm. So either God mm-hmm. is going to intercede or how he intercedes to help you in your battle, you're not. But mm-hmm. it doesn't make a sense for me to live, and I'm going to live in fear, and I'm going to live in these conditions just to say that I, I live. You know, either you're going to die for something, I choose not to die early, but I'd be damned if I'm going to allow someone to kill my family. And uh, and as a human being, I can't prosper until somebody give me their blessing, and I have to love them into loving me. I think that's a misnormal. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I really, mm-hmm. that to me is not. And then for y'all to dismiss that young lady when she said it, said, oh, well, I had to learn how to. And this old Dr. King was, well, I think he was a great man. I think he done a lot of great things, and mm-hmm. he was very articulate. And I think that principle is an honorable principle, mm-hmm. and that works to a certain perspective. Got it. But at the end of the day, if you allow people to do what they want to do to you, we're going to be in worse condition, especially if we're more violent to ourselves mm-hmm. than we are to the oppressor. Well, I want to say that. this. I want to say this, Art. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't yes, want sir. you to uh, to misunderstand. Too. By the way, it's good to hear your voice. I haven't heard Art in a long time, so it's good to hear you, and you always had uh, a great perspective. But, uh, no, I don't want you to misunderstand that we were trying to um, elevate one ideology over another. I just want to say that King's mandate his spiritual mandate he felt like that was what he needed to do but nat turner was also a preacher and nat turner also felt like he had a mandate from god and that's what allowed him to carry out the revolution he carried out that resulted in him taking out a lot of his oppressors and so and he did that in a violent way right so i mean they're different perspectives but the, the larger point that i was making is that it's hard for us 
to judge the perspective of someone who feels like they've gotten a mandate from God. And with that, they say, judge someone by their fruits, the fruits of King's labor. He's accomplished a lot, as you mentioned. And so has Nat Turner through different mm-hmm. means. So right. that, that we all are pieces to a puzzle and we all have different mandates and different purposes that we have to carry out. Absolutely. All right. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> and to art, one thing I, I want you to know that in, in, anyway, if the uh, perception was that we dismissed Anita, I want to apologize for that because one of the things I strive for is respecting the opinions of the callers um, yes, while sharing our perspective and opinion as well. So uh, in no way did I dismiss what she said. I, I thought what she said was profound, and, and it's one of the reasons we spent time uh, responding to it. Yeah, uh, as was your comment, sorry. Yep. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, thank you for the comment, sorry. Yeah. All right, I got Gladys. Gladys, how are you? You make me happy to say, let me get in when you want me to fit in. I want to say, a.k.a. Goddess Aya Divine, my very new resident of South Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Brothers, all of you, I like, I like to say a happy hotel and another happy year under racism and European domination to master in Saba. To you, Brother Salim. How about Ghani? Just always unity. So you know what? We got to get this. That's what I'm talking about. This is a psychological sabotage for us to have an annual ritual of the celebration of Kwanzaa, which is not for total liberation. We got to learn those principles. And we get that. We won't have political uh, nonsense, nuances such as that dumb, dramatic, Trump leading black men who are the father of the planet Earth. But I don't want to be too emotional, brothers, because I'm surrounded by all of the energy. And I just want to say that thank you, brother. Linnell, and congratulations yep. on all, all your new accomplishments. Now, this is what I want to say uh, before I get too excited. I love what Brother Art and Sister Nisha say. Now, I want to say about this personal integrity, Becca was an evil. They ain't got no personality. But listen here, I want to say this right here. I love what Nisha says. You do need help. She said non-oppression. That would be wonderful. Face it. Listen, Mom, I want to say this here real quick, and I apologize. I, I failed to have articulation in terms of being like Dr. King, uh, medic, but I know what I want to say. I, I write it down. But I want to tell you this right here. Uh, my question is uh, regarding the Honorable Martin Luther King Jr. in the 21st century. Is, may I share with you that I am profoundly proud on behalf of Dr. Martin Luther King's vision versus his dream of a reality of our integration and a nightmare. So may I ask all of you your honest and uh, mm. opinion and mm. expert participation to spiritually enhance 2018 to 2025 double duo of M&M, Malcolm, Martin, Marcus, and Muhammad, land, from land, uh, intergenerational Umoja alliance to address and resolve separate land reservations, 25 years no taxation, past due and present economic compensation, and last but not least, resources to secure PTSD, post-traumatic disease, psychological rehabilitation. And so with that, would you assist this grassroots mobilization? And in addition, what do you think Dr. King's promised land vision would be today? And I say to all of you, Hotel Archer, and come on, let's bring about the revolution, psychological independence from European domination. Brother, you talk black to me, and have a black and it's a wonderful happy new year. All right. Thank you so much for the phone call. Yeah. All right. Mm. So she she asked some uh, some very clear questions there. Yeah, yeah. Where do you want to start? Mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, because she kind of piled on the questions. Um... <laughs> I know. I know one. I know one yeah. that she that she put out there was uh, what would King's vision be today for the next yeah. step of the fight? Yeah. And uh, she mentioned reparations, and I think about mm-hmm. organizations like Encobra. There's a group. Um, they have a newspaper out in Florida called the Burning Spear, but they're led by Omali Yeshitela, mm-hmm. and um, they have been fighting and protesting at the UN. 
um, and creating a framework for reparations and what that would look like and giving examples. And just like Ta-Nehisi Coates did in his paper, yeah. giving examples of practical ways that we could look at what reparations right. might right. look like. And we've seen it done before for different communities, right? So I actually do think that that would be the next step in the fight. I was a little dismayed. I was talking uh, yesterday on my uh, podcast about down in Atlanta, Killer Mike and T.I. have become a part of uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms, uh, the new mayor of Atlanta, become mm -hmm. part of a transition team. Okay. And I remember that I was asking Killer Mike, I'm like, you know, you supported Bernie, Man Bernie Sanders in the last presidential election, but he stopped short of supporting reparations. Bernie Sanders did. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's like even the most progressive, the most left of the left of the left, I know that maybe that reparations compensation won't win you. <laughs> the election so maybe that's why people don't yeah you know yeah. don't talk about it so you know who's to know what someone's real ideology is but at the end of the day we need to really start talking about reparations as a reality because we used to did yeah we, we didn't used to talk <laughs> about the the notion of a black president as a reality so nope. you're we right have to, you're we, right <laughs> we say right. we'll never have a black president and a lot of us think we'll never have reparations mm -hmm. we need to start looking at a framework that will make it Make it palatable because at least it at least starts with affirmative action, maybe. And yeah. then let, let's let's take it piece by piece and make it make it logical and make it something realistic and tangible. Here's what I like about the conversation about reparations is in order for reparations to happen, that means that the American establishment, the government itself, has to recognize the ills of slavery. There you go. Right. In order for that to happen, they have to say, you know what? That was a misstep. And like Sister Gladys said that it has created a post-traumatic slavery syndrome mm -hmm. um, within the African-American community, which as a coach, as someone who's working with people and guiding them, and, and we're having cerebral conversation, when I'm working with African-Americans, they struggle with a particular context. And I do believe that context came from the history of slavery. Mm -hmm. And Domiti, you and I have had a conversation about the difference between Africans, uh -huh. right, who are here in this country and African-Americans who were brought over and descendants of slaves. Yeah. There's a, yeah. a different mental context that uh, Africans have from African-Americans. And I believe that gap, that shift has to do with the trauma of slavery and the after effects of that. Right. And so because of the after effects and by the way, the profit that a lot of a lot of these large organizations have have received as a result of slavery, I think reparations is. In a lot of ways, not just, you know, money coming into the African-American community, but in, but in a lot of ways, it's, it's a way to, yeah, to alleviate. I mean, you can never alleviate the sin, but at least address the sin of slavery. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So, Salim, I'm curious about you. What, I mean, what are your thoughts on it? Man, you, you, I'm, I'm listening to you, brother. You, you're preaching my gospel. <laughs> uh, that, that's exactly that's exactly my line, brother. Uh, reparations. Uh, that's. I think uh, I'm thinking more and more that we should develop a reparations party, mm. so that we will be very explicit yeah. in our agenda, and you know, just not not block any points, man. Just be very specific because we that's exactly what we need and, and the points that you're making uh Linnell, about the differences between us and immigrant groups is i think what i call a lack of cultural capital it was that mm. trauma of mm -hmm. enslavement and and the legacy of slavery the way we were prevented from from developing from accumulating the kind of cultural capital that other populations do because we were in this situation of uh enslavement and and, mm -hmm. and subservience we were socialized yes or subservient yes and and we never had the, the opportunity to develop that kind of cultural capital that other immigrant groups have have had to develop mm -hmm. and when they come here they have that mm -hmm. and it, it orients their behavior it encourages success because of that orientation, and we've never had that opportunity to develop that kind of 
capital. We had it here and there. I mean, I think it's an organic thing where mm-hmm. wherever people are living in, in self-sustaining communities, they automatically accumulate this capital. But we've never had the opportunity to live in self-sustaining communities. We've always had to adopt a predatory lifestyle in many yeah. cases because yeah. we're on the edge of survival. Yep. And we couldn't develop that, that cultural capital. And I think that that's a major problem. If we can develop that, no one can stop us. No one can get in our way. Absolutely. Uh, but we have to have that base. Yeah, yeah. And to that point around a predatory lifestyle, you know, that it's created that way so then they can create the narrative around the violent black man, right? Yes, sir. The, you know, it's created that way. And also they can they can continue to push prisoners, black prisoners into the prison profit uh, right. establishment. Yeah. So they take advantage of our social failures. Exactly. Profit off our social failures. Exactly. It's like a cannibalistic society. Yep. Uh, absolutely. Okay. Um, I got a phone call from Robert here about the Southern response. Robert, you're on the air. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I'd like to address something uh, Salim just said. He said other immigrant groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were some blacks who were here prior to or before the Mayflower. However, the ones who were brought here in chains are not immigrants, migrant settlers, refugees, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And when Dr. King stood up on the bus and looked at the empty seats, according to the United Nations Resolution 96I of 1945, I believe. That's an act of genocide, and it's a continuation. This one of the acts of genocide perpetrated on our people since mm-hmm. we've been brought here. Yeah. Now, the you talk about reparations. Reparations were paid to the slave owners, the plantation owners, for losing their That's livestock. Right. That's right. Their livestock right. were were uh, one of the livestock yeah. was black people. Yep, that's true. They, they didn't they didn't lose their pigs, horses, cows, mules. Uh, they were paid three hundred dollars each mm-hmm. for losing uh, their livestock. Each person yep. who had those slaves were compensated mm-hmm. with uh, reparations, and everyone else get reparations except our people. Israelis get reparations who claim they were uh, persecuted. Not and, just uh, Israelis, man, but Jews. I, I know. Catholics. I'll just give. That well, the University of Chicago from German reparations. Oh, absolutely. And it's yeah. a question that, about the Judaism. Who are the Jews? Mm. Uh, I think uh, Minister Farrakhan really? a speech yeah. on that, pointed yeah. to the audience. You mm. are the real Jews, the mm. Hebrews. And uh, Cliff Kelly was sitting in the audience that day. There's a documentary on that about okay, uh, the, the lost tribes of Israel and, mm-hmm. and, and how um, right. a lot of them are Africans that ended up in the slave trade over here. Mm. Oh, so you're aware of that. So this is yep. the kind of history that mm-hmm. the Generation X's and some of the, even the boomers don't know. I yeah. mean, we've been <laughs> fed, spoon-fed uh, garbage over the years. And when you talk, when uh, Dr. King was at the signing of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, there were recognized two federally protected classes, blacks of African descent and Native American, which is not a, and then they, they realized that there was such a benefit from this. They threw in the whole crowd. It's like robbing the bank and they stampede a herd of cows down the street to get away. They're getting away with it because now white women, gays, Hispanics, and so on and so on, on down the list. Everyone's a protected class now. Mm-hmm. And the, the two halves that were cut from that pie, the Native Americans have their tax-free status, casinos and what have you, and they still, this is still their land. But we get crumbs from the crust of yeah. the pie. We don't yeah. even have a slice. And when Dr. and this came out of Dr. King's period, 
that we should, everyone should be uh, intellectualize the U.S. Riot Commission report. And Salim, you're familiar with the Kerner Commission report. Yes, sir. It, uh, it's about identifying. We've been identified, tagged, That's how I got my titled, job. labeled. <laughs> right. And everyone else, and then it tagged, but in that Kerner Commission report, it identified white community as the villains, the culprits. Mm-hmm. Now, we self-identify ourselves as ex-offenders, mm-hmm. uh, thugs, or what have you, but we've been placed in those conditions, and we are not fighting to identify, to educate our people as to their real positions, how we got there. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll let you go on that and you continue. No, I love what you guys are saying about, yeah. about this, this idea of self-identification, the slave disorder, right? Because you have people who live in America who could be descendants of people who are already indigenous, black people yeah. who are already indigenous to True. this land, uh, who identify with that. Like I'm talking about reparations, but my parents are immigrants. I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't get a red cent from it, right? right? Right. So I'm not, I'm not even fighting for something that is necessary to me, but I self-identify as an mm-hmm. African American having been in America my whole life, right? Right. So mm-hmm. there are elements of that post-traumatic slave disorder that I have to contend with, with what's possible for me or the way I'm discriminated against is no different than the yeah, way absolutely. someone born and raised in, in America several de- generations in is treated, right? But, but, but don't you, you, you are better equipped, I think, because of your, the cultural capital that your family brings. I agree. And we've talked yeah. about that. Yep. Yeah. Don't make I've had a personal conversation about that. And, yeah. and yeah. I, I told yeah. him about the blessing that it is that in terms of generationally, He's not afflicted with some of the things that, you know, some exactly. of us are afflicted with. Exactly. Yeah. Right. But and you guys are right. And I, I think it does position us and people from the diaspora give, give us a different position and a perspective to fight for the whole diaspora in a different way. Mm-hmm. But it also shows how pervasive that yeah. slavery That's is right. to yeah. where you can still yeah. you can still have some of these ideals, some of these concepts and still be affected by slavery, That's even right. though you're not a direct descendant of it. Yep. True. Yep. Yeah. That's how powerful culture is, man. It really yeah. is powerful. Very powerful. All right. So, so gentlemen, what I want to do in, in the last 10 minutes, and I, we still have some calls, so maybe we'll get to those calls. But I think more importantly, like I said, I want to employ you all in terms of your thoughts around what's next. And Salim, I'd like to start with you. You know, your thoughts around. So here we've had this this powerful dialogue about Dr. King. We, we've heard a lot of different perspectives on, you know, who we should be, how we should be. Your thoughts on, you know, us moving forward, 2018, 21st century. Well, you know, you know, one one of the benefits of perhaps uh, a detriment of uh, age is that you see patterns um, mm. in, in our movements, and I this is this period reminds me of another period in which uh, Reagan, Ronald Reagan, came into office. There was a movement, a response to Reagan's ascension in the black community, which was toward nationalism, mm. toward a. Uh, hewing together, becoming more concerned with a collective economic wealth and exercising our, you know, our collective will. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that we're seeing that recur, you know, like Mays, Jackson and Charles and, and mm-hmm. that what's in it for the black people sentiment. I think that right. that's, right. that's kind of the spirit of the times. And I see a, a pattern going on in that direction. And, and I think that that's a positive, that's a positive uh, orientation for us. But I, I do think that we need to focus on reparations, man, until we become, until we get compensatory resources that will allow us to escape living on the edge of survival, we'll continue uh, to have these problems of, uh, of, uh, incivility in our communities, of, uh, not, you know, of, uh, violence in our communities, um, the, the kind of 
you know, disproportionate violence and disproportionate dysfunction mm-hmm. in our communities. And so we need we need to focus on ensuring a, a base of resources. And I think reparations will do that. Mm-hmm. Got it. Got it. Very nice. I believe that uh, I think right now with social media, I think I think it's so everyone can have an opinion. And I, sometimes mm-hmm. social media feels really loud with different perspectives. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and And I think that it gets to the point where if you're not embracing a certain brand of activism that you become an enemy of certain communities, right? Mm-hmm. So it, Coates is arguing with uh, Cornell West and yeah. West is arguing yeah. with Umar yeah. John. Yeah. And, yeah. and yeah. Like, you know, let's not forget, you know, Booker T was arguing with other black intellectuals at True. the time. Yeah. Too. Him and so, W.E.B. Du Bois. Yep. Absolutely. So, yeah. so that discourse is healthy, but sometimes it just feels compounded with social media because we're inundated so often. And I think that. And we, it's so public. And it's so public. It's so public. And pub- it's so yeah. personal. Man, yeah. Dominant, you know? yeah. yeah, it's not it's not on merit, right? It's not on principle, right. it's not on the idea. You start to, you know, it goes from your perspective to your mama. Like yeah. <laughs> right. real quick. Real quick, it changes. And I think that it, you know, it makes people shy away from sometimes activism or black nationalism, people who could be an asset to certain mm-hmm. communities, people mm-hmm. who have been able to get into certain spaces, feel disconnected from the black community because they've been called times or mm-hmm. maybe they don't ascribe to a certain ideology. And I think that we need to embrace a different form of unity and see that people can fight in different ways. If yes. this person works in that space, he gives us access to that space. Mm-hmm. He may not give you the level of access that you feel he should give you. But again, you know, <laughs> the devil, you know, right? right <laughs> you know, exactly. It's better to have that person there than anyone else, I think. And I think that our generation is uniquely positioned to start building wealth. And without wealth building, we won't have an economic base to support Absolutely. a lot of these activists. You know, I was talking about, you know, this case with Kanika Jenkins and this GoFundMe page that happened. Mm-hmm. She was the girl that went missing and found in the freezer, rose my hotel. And then there was a GoFundMe page in her name. Several of them put up that, you know, the family didn't real. authorize. Right. right. They weren't real. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And we wouldn't even point the finger at maybe these guys did these activists did it if they had an economic base. They would need the money. Exactly. Right. At the right. end of the day. Exactly. So we need people who are doctors, who are lawyers or who are carpenters, who are plumbers, who who just have disposable income that they can help and fund the movement. And some people who pursue education, who pursue careers, they're not pulling out of the movement. But in fact, they're becoming assets to the movement in different ways, Absolutely. even if they don't engage personally, even if they don't read every single black nationalist book. That doesn't mean that there aren't for the cause. It just means that they have a different cause in the fight. Mm-hmm. And so I think wealth building, figuring out how we become pieces to the puzzle and being more amicable with each other who don't, with people yes. who don't think like us, man. Yes, 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 yes. So I, I can appreciate both of those perspectives and I agree wholeheartedly with both of you. I um, actually endorse Domitee's perspective as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and so not, not to necessarily re- repeat you all, but uh, you all both know me well. And and the first place for me is for the black community is a sense of purpose. I think that we lack identity. Mm. And I say number one, because I I wholeheartedly agree with reparations, uh, Salim, and the the idea of unity, Domati, I agree with. But I I think in order for us to get to a point where we can unify first, right, that we have to have a sense of identity where for me, it doesn't matter if Domati sees something different because of my own personal identity and, and my ability to stand as a man, I can respect that difference, right? And mm-hmm. and look at Domati as my brother and not pull him down. And so that for me, that's number one, purpose and identity, because that yes, I believe that in itself provides a template and a structure for knowing where each of us individually, we kind of know our role at that point in terms of a unified movement. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and then that's where number two for me is unity, right? So once you have purpose and identity, now I know where I fit in this conversation. I know where I fit with the Domati and a Celine because I know who I am. And so I can work with these brothers despite agreement and create powerful unity. And one of the things that really strikes me is how quickly we, we judge one another and how quickly we jump on one another for, for anything. I mean, this whole, this whole, mm-hmm. I, I saw this, uh, this live stream of Dr. Umar in court right and uh it hurt my feelings right it it, it hurt my feelings right do i agree with everything that dr umar says no do i agree with some of what he says yes am i for him absolutely absolutely because of what he stands for and because of the vehicle that he can be for our community and then Mm -hmm. and then last uh lee Celine, the idea of reparations to me is an idea that if the united states said oh you know what there is something we must do then it is them acknowledging the sin and that's where the healing can be yeah, I agree. I mean, I, yeah. I, I think that that would be that would be the major the major turning point. Yep. If that acknowledgement happens. So for me, it's those three in those orders in terms of, in terms of us moving forward, and that's why I do the work that I do, and uh, that's why I focus in the places that I focus right now. That's why you hear me talk about purpose. That's why you hear hear me talk about identity. And Keep that's, focusing, my brother. Keep focusing. Yes, sir. You're yes, doing sir. A good job.